just a moment, we're going to begin a new sermon series on 2 Peter. And so some of you are familiar with 2 Peter, some of you are not familiar with 2 Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning, which is the introduction plus the first section. But just to give you a little bit of context, uh, 2 Peter was written around 65 AD, somewhere in there. And Peter was actually in prison in Rome, even around the same time that Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And uh, Nero, who is the emperor at the time, has been persecuting Christians. We know that later on you've heard the, the saying that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. But one of the things that happened during Nero's reign is that uh, there was a huge fire in Rome. And in order to sort of throw the blame off of himself, Nero blamed the Christians, and the people of Rome were all too happy to persecute them. Now, that's one external threat. There's an internal threat going on in the church that uh, Peter is writing to, and that's this uh, sort of version of Gnosticism, which is creating licentiousness or sort of sexual immorality within the context of the church. And so he's writing this letter to believers to tell them to prepare for these internal and external threats. So, we're going to jump into 2 Peter. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. And then after I read those verses, we're going to take a moment and pray, and then we'll begin. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 15. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall." For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. In other words, he knows he's going to die soon as he is imprisoned in Rome as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you for these final words of Peter to the church. Father, I thank you that here 2,000 years later, we can hear his encouragement and his admonition to us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit work, would work through these words. I pray that your Spirit would work through our worship today, the community of the saints that are gathered here. And Father, I pray that you would take these truths, that you would um, sink them through our heads all the way down into our hearts, that they wouldn't just change what we think, but they might even change how we feel and then how we live our lives. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Some of you in this room know that one of my favorite movies is called Nacho Libre. Nacho Libre. You may be familiar with it. Uh, it's a 2006 movie starring Jack Black. He is the guy right there in the middle with a little mustache. Now, some of you may not know this, but it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. It was nominated for Best Actor and Best Original Score. Nacho Libre was also nominated for eight Golden Globes in 2006, winning three, including Best Picture. The New York Times hailed Nacho Libre as a masterpiece of cinematic storytelling, and the Washington Post lists Nacho Libre number 46 out of its top 100 movies. None of that is true. In fact, I made all of that up. I don't think it won anything, unless it was a Nickelodeon's Kid Choice Award. That may have won something here. I don't know. It's a silly little movie that is fairly clean, and so it's one of the few comedies that uh, my family and I have watched together probably in the last 20 years. It does star Jack Black. He is a discontented monastic cook who works at an orphanage, so he serves food to the other monks and to these kids in the orphanage. But he dreams of being a luchadore, which is a Mexican wrestler, the guys with those masks on. It's a profession that's forbidden by the leaders of his uh, monastic group. The movie chronicles Nacho's preparation to enter the wrestling world, however. He sneaks into it and endure the epic battles that lay before him. So in preparation for each of his wrestling matches, he goes through all sorts of different uh, ways to prepare. One scene, he climbs a cliff and he drinks the yolk from an eagle's egg. In another, he gets a super cool luchadore costume. He and Escalito, his partner, shoot cantaloupes at each other. They go through all of these uh, sort of training elements Unsurprisingly, none of them work. Nacho is a terrible wrestler who is easily overwhelmed by his opponents in the ring. Amazingly, however, at the end of the movie, Nacho is able to face off against his biggest threat, Ramses, if you guys have ever seen the movie, in the finale of a wrestling tournament, and miraculously, he wins, all right? Just in in case Amazon gets a little tick upwards tonight on its viewing of uh, Nacho Libre, I get a kickback from that, just FYI. Now, here's the point. In the Christian life, we're all going to face enemies. We're going to face attacks. We're going to face threats. We're going to face things that that really threaten to take us out. Now, we know this. We know that some of those threats are external, but we also know that some of those threats are internal. Peter's audience was fully aware of those threats. Again, we know that Nero was in power. We know he was persecuting Christians, but we also know that there were internal threats as well. Externally, the reason that the Christians were not welcome in the Roman uh, world is because they followed a leader who talked about another kingdom. And also, because of their care for the poor and the outcast, the Christian religion was becoming dangerously popular. And so again, as a result, uh, that made them an easy target for Nero. His audience, that is Peter's audience, faced an internal threat as well. I mentioned it earlier. And it was actually a threat that was far more serious, as most of us might admit that our internal threats are more serious as well. It seems as though the early church was being infiltrated by people who had adopted a philosophical school of thought called Gnosticism. Some of you are familiar with what Gnosticism is. Essentially, Gnosticism taught that spiritual stuff, the stuff you can't see but is real, was good, and that physical stuff was bad or even irrelevant. And so one result of their ideology was denying that Jesus actually came in the flesh. Now, that's obviously not a Christian perspective. Obviously, Christianity really hails the flesh as something that God created uh, and is good, and that God sent Jesus to come and to redeem. Another result of Gnosticism was sort of taken from the, hey, the physical stuff doesn't matter, and that was sexual immorality within the church. 
And so if the physical world was unimportant, then according to these Gnostics, why not indulge the flesh? Peter wrote his letter to these churches to warn them of these very real threats, again, internally and externally, and to give them advice on how to prepare and how to stand strong. The question is, how many of his encouragements and how many of his uh, pieces of advice to prepare apply to us as well? The question is, do we face similar threats? How should we prepare for these inevitable battles? Well, number one, part of what we see here that Peter has to say to us is that we prepare to fight our battles by pursuing goodness, by pursuing goodness. Let's look at verses five through seven. They say this, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So one of the broader, one of the criticisms of the broader evangelical church, in other words, this is a a criticism that the culture often makes against evangelicals, is what's called legalism. So legalism is the belief that if we live a good life, then God will accept us. Or if we do more good stuff than bad stuff, then we're in. The mantra of legalism is, I obey, therefore I am accepted. I obey, therefore I am accepted. Now, there are a few problems with legalism. The most obvious is that God does not accept us based upon our moral record. God accepts us because of Jesus' moral record. God accepts us because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and God accepts us because of our faith in him. The gospel is never, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel is always, I am accepted, therefore I obey. A second problem with legalism is that it creates judgment and contempt towards others who don't measure up to our particular standard. Think about the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple where they both go to pray and the Pharisee looks down upon his fellow man. The tax collector, on the other hand, was so broken by his sin that he couldn't lift up his eyes at all. We saw this contempt and judgment very clearly in the Pharisees of Jesus' day. That's why Jesus told that story. And we still see this judgment and contempt amongst Christians of our own time period when we look down upon other groups who don't share or don't measure up to our particular moral standards. When we do that, we've clearly forgotten that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins and that we were made alive by God's grace and his mercy, not because of our superior moral quality. If that's true then there's no place for us to look down on anyone, right? Because faith is a gift, as Ephesians tells us. There is forgiveness, but there is no room for legalism in the church of Christ. That's one side of the continuum, but there's another side of the continuum as well. One of the failures of Reformed and mainline churches can be the exact opposite problem. Often these churches focus on faith or theological knowledge, but they underemphasize they neglect or obfuscate biblical morality altogether. That was true for Peter's audience. That was the danger for them. And it's more likely to be true for us in our current cultural context as well here in the West. Most American churches, Seven Hills included, have a deficiency of biblical virtue, and it's hurting us far more than we realize. I'm getting ready to turn 50 in a couple months. And uh, my body is a constant reminder of the aging process. My back hurts. I have bursitis in my hip. 
tell you about that later. My beard is turning gray in places. I get up to go to the bathroom at least once a night. I can't hear so well anymore. I'm constantly having to ask my kids to repeat what they were saying over again, and I accuse them of mumbling. I can't see very well, especially in the evening. I have to wear my glasses at night when I drive. When I get together with old soccer buddies, we regularly discuss our physical disintegration, that we are kind of falling apart. Recently, one of the guys that I was talking to about being uh, mentioned that he had been depressed and he'd been tired and feeling unmotivated, and he told us he had been to his doctor, and his doctor recommended that he, he get his testosterone checked. So it turns out that he was in the bottom first percentile of U.S. males. In other words, he was producing less testosterone than you know, all but the, you know, the bottom sort of percentile. It's no wonder he was tired. It was no wonder he was depressed. It was no wonder he had no energy. And the next time we talked, after he had gotten this, this uh, testosterone supplement, he said that he felt like a brand new person. That's what Peter is talking about here. He's telling his readers that they have a deficiency of virtue and that that's why they feel weak. It isn't enough for Christians just to have faith in the form of intellectual assent. That's the same point that James makes in his letter. And that's why Peter here says in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Peter knows that our faith has to be supplemented by virtue in order for us to have the necessary strength to engage in the battles that we will inevitably face. Without this supplement of virtue, Peter tells us that we will be ineffective or unfruitful. Those are the words he uses. The Greek word ineffective here can mean sluggish. And the Greek word for unfruitful just means with no profit. That makes sense. Sluggish and without profit. There's a guy in our church named Jeff Holloway. Some of you know him. He owns the CrossFit gym over on East 2nd or East 1st. Now, Jeff is interesting. Even though we come there to lift weights and to run around and to do painful things, one of the things he talks about all the time is he talks about stuff other than working out. He talks about sleep. He talks about eating enough protein and eating carbs and eating whole foods. He talks about having recovery days. He talks about drinking enough water. And the reason he talks about those things because he knows that even if you're working out, if you don't have the proper balance in your diet and if you don't have enough rest, then you're going to feel sluggish. You're going to engage in workouts that just don't bear much fruit. It doesn't mean you're not a CrossFitter. It just means that you're not doing so hot. In the same way that you can have faith and be a Christian, but without virtue, you're also not going to do so well. Peter reminds us that in order for us to be prepared for the battle against internal and external threats, those that we face, we have to supplement our faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. If we don't, we are bound to be ineffective, sluggish, and unproductive, and wholly unprepared for those threats that will inevitably come. Now, unfortunately, we don't have enough time this morning for me to unpack each of those words in that list that Peter gives us. I am, however, working on a sermon series for 2022 where I'm going to sort of take a look at some of these virtue lists in detail. But for the time being, suffice it to say that Peter is re recommending that in our fight against evil, we must supplement our faith with goodness, with virtue. It's like taking vitamins to supplement the food we put into our bodies. We have to be intentional about adding that which is virtuous into our hearts. 
This might mean any number of things. It might mean intentionally listening, listening to Christian music in the morning while you get ready. Or it might mean not listening to anything in the morning while you get ready so that you can talk to God. Adding virtue to your faith might be reading a brief devotional each night before you go to bed instead of scrolling through Instagram. Or it might mean choosing to meet with a group of believers one morning each week in order to study the Bible even though you would rather sleep in. Regardless, Peter's point is clear. In order for us to be strengthened for, to be prepared for the battles of life, we have to supplement our faith with goodness and virtue. If we don't, we shouldn't be surprised when we feel spiritually sluggish and spiritually weak. So we prepare for these battles, these external threats, these internal threats that will inevitably come by adding goodness to our faith. The second point that Peter makes is this. He says, we must prepare to fight our battles through knowing God. Look at verses two and three. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I once had the opportunity to be part of an exit interview with someone who had been in rehab for three months. Their parents were there, their wife was there, an elder from their church was there, and we were all supposed to be a part of the process of continued healing for this person as they reintegrated back into society. One thing that stands out from that exit interview um, really starkly in my memory is that one of his counselors made the following statement. The counselor said this, the opposite of addiction isn't abstinence, it's connection. Let me say that one more time. The opposite of addiction isn't abstinence, it's connection. What that counselor meant was that overcoming addiction isn't primarily about self-control, although that's obviously part of it. What he was arguing was that the real power to overcome addiction is through real intimate relationships with other people. Study after study affirms that simple truth, whether it's sexual addiction, opioid addiction, or alcohol addiction. The number one correlating factor with maintaining abstinence is having healthy relationships. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised then when Peter says that one of our greatest sources of strength in standing both against our external threats and our internal threats is the knowledge of God. Obviously, there are many different types of knowing spoken of in the Bible. There's the knowing about something or knowing about someone, like a basketball fan who knows all about LeBron and knows all about his stats. But then there's the kind of knowing that is relational, like the kind of knowledge that one of LeBron's kids actually has about him. They might not know his stats, but they do get to ride on his shoulders at Disney World. And they get to sit with him on the couch watching Survivor eating out of the same bowl of popcorn. It's this kind of relational knowledge that Peter is speaking of here. When we know God and when we walk with him, we are strengthened for these inevitable battles that arise. Listen again to verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Through the knowledge of God, we are given all things that pertain to life and godliness, right? It's not just that we're given information. We're not just given details. We're not given sort of 10 handy points on how to live a good life. What God does is he says, hey, come know me, walk with me, and you'll have what you need for life and godliness. 
You want to know how to live life with the character of God, walk with him and know him. And realize that when we know God relationally, that his power is at work in us, leading us towards, as Peter says, his own glory and excellence. I want you to stop and think about that for just a moment. The God of the universe wants to make you into something glorious. The God of the universe not only wants to make you into something glorious, he is using his power to make you into something or someone glorious. He is at work restoring those who know him to their rightful state as women and men created in his very image. Some of us might not be so comfortable with that idea, but it's absolutely consistent with the rest of Scripture. Psalm 8, David writes this. He says, What is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. God is up to something amazing in each of us, and the portal for that transformation is knowing him. It's just like a parent. Krista and I have three kids. What we want for each of our three kids, we want them all to be awesome, right? We want them to be great. We want them to be the best that they can be. And what Peter is saying here is the way that God accomplishes that in us, or one of the ways he accomplishes that with us, is through knowing him. That's why Jesus could pray in John 17, 3, on the last night of his life, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The question is, how do we go about knowing God? That seems like a pretty big task. One answer is that there's a man named J.I. Packer who wrote a book called Knowing God. So on the one hand, I'll recommend his book to you. So any of you, you know, who loves reading three or 400 page books, Knowing God, J.I. Packer. On the other hand, I'll try to give you a very simple answer to that question, and it's true. We know God the same way that we know any other person. We carve out time to be with people that we want to get to know. We go for walks. We sit down to coffee with them. We talk to them. We ask them questions, and when they respond, we listen to what they have to say to us. If we're going to know God, we must read his word. That's how he talks to us. And we must spend time in prayer. If you aren't walking with God, you are going to feel distant from him, and you are going to feel spiritually anemic. You're going to feel weak. You're going to feel sluggish if you're not walking with him. You'll be woefully unprepared for the threats that will inevitably come to test your faith. So we prepare to fight against the threats that assault us by supplementing our faith with goodness. That's the first point. And then secondly, we prepare to fight against the threats that assault us simply by knowing God, by walking with him. And then finally, Peter makes one last point. He says this, we prepare to fight our battles by remembering what is true. Let's begin in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter's making a big deal here of saying you need to remember what is true. It's part of your greatest weapons in the battles that you'll face. Most of you in this room are probably familiar with that weird feeling, that horrible feeling of anxiety 
that precedes turning in a big paper or taking an exam, right? Some of you are living it right now. Some of you just have to remember it from a long time ago. But even if it's been a little while since you've been in school, you can close your eyes and you can pretty easily uh, get back in touch with that anxiety. For me, there came a point somewhere in seminary where I learned the key to conquering my test and paper anxiety. And believe it or not, here's what helped me. I recalled, I remembered, I thought back to all of my test taking and all of my paper writing throughout middle school and high school and college. And in all of those years of school, I never failed a single test. I quit stressing out about tests and papers and essays because I remembered back to the previous eight to 12 years and I realized it just didn't make any sense for me to be stressed out because I always did fine and I always turned it in. I overcame my anxiety by remembering what is true or what was true. Similarly, Peter prepares his audience for their upcoming battles by reminding them of what is true. We've just talked at length about two of the things he reminded his readers of, the necessity of knowing God and adding the pursuit of goodness to their faith, but there's much more. Let's take a look at what else Peter reminds us of just in these verses. He says this in verse one, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter's reminding them of this. He's saying that you must remember there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Peter's saying that despite the fact that he is an apostle and that he and the believers to whom he is writing, that they are all on equal footing with God, that they're all adopted daughters and sons of God. We are reminded, Peter reminds us in verse two of something else. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In other words, you've already got a lot of it, but how about more? He's basically recommending that we remember, they remember that we've all been given grace and peace. When we are adopted into the family of God, we inherit things that we haven't earned. We inherit forgiveness. We inherit Jesus' record attributed to our account. And we inherit peace with God. We need to remember that that's true. Verse three, he reminds uh, the people he's writing to, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We must remember that God's divine power, we sang about it this morning, is at work in us. Through his power, God has given us and is giving us exactly what we need when we need it to live the life that he's calling us to. I could go on, I'll just read one more thing. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises. What does that mean? We must remember that we inherit the promises of God through faith. The promises of God are that he will be our God and we will be his people. The promises of God is that he will be with us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. His promise is that he's working out all things for our good and for his glory. He promises that we're safe to come before him as prodigal children receiving hugs and kisses and rings and robes and a feast which serves as a reminder that we have a place at the family table. On his last night with the disciples, Jesus shared a feast with them. This feast was a reminder of the Passover where God had commanded the children of Israel to take a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb without spot or blemish, to take its life and to place the blood of this lamb over the doorpost of their homes. And in doing so, the angel of death would pass over their family. That's why it's called the Passover. The message 
was clear both from God to the children of Israel, but Jesus to the disciples. And the message is this, you are safe, that you do not have to run and hide from God. A thousand years later, Jesus shared this Passover feast with his friends, and he told them to do this in remembrance of me. He turned it into the Lord's Supper. And so for those of us in this room this morning, all of those things, all of those promises of God are given to you by Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection.